to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 8, as we follow along with today's lesson. He said, Why do you reason these things in your hearts? He knew what was going on in their hearts. John said he didn't need that anybody should testify to him of men. He knew men. He knew what was in them. He knew what they were thinking. He said, what is easier to say to this man? Thy sins are forgiven you, or to rise, take up your bed, and walk. Obviously, it's easier to say your sins be forgiven you. Because there is no way to prove or to disprove that you have spoken with authority. When sins are forgiven, there's, uh, there's nothing that we can see visibly, immediately, that demonstrates that the words were spoken with power and authority. Now, in Sunday school, we used to see the little black hearts turn white. And, and so... We, we say, you know, it turns red, the blood of Jesus, and then it comes white, you know, and it's, and it's glorious. We can see it, but uh, you really can't see it. <laughs> you can't see the change in a person's heart when the sins are forgiven. Thus, a, a, a quack could go around, you know, just saying, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. And, and how could you prove that the guy was a quack? You see, there's the, how can, you can't see it. But if you say to a man who is paralyzed, rise, take up your bed, and walk, immediately it will be obvious whether or not there is authority and power in your words. If the fellow still lies there, though he might struggle a bit, but just can't make it, then you say, well, there's no power or authority in this man's words. But if, on the other hand, the man rises, takes his cot or his stretcher, and walks out the door, then there is visible proof before you that this man speaks with authority and power. And so Jesus said, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you might know, and here's the whole key, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He's proving now there's authority and there's power in his words. I'm going to do the more difficult. He turned to the man and he said, rise, 
take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man rose, took his bed, and walked. And the people were all amazed. They said, boy, never seen anything like this before. This is, this is something new. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus takes this messianic title of Son of Man. Uh, he will uh, use it again several times. He makes reference to himself as the Son of Man. Going back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13. As Daniel speaks about the night visions, he said, I behold one like the Son of Man. He came with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So this title, Son of Man, in Daniel is a reference to the Messiah and his receiving of the kingdom, and thus it became a, a, a term or one of the titles of the Messiah was that of Son of Man. And so Jesus is using this title when he proves that he has power to forgive sins. That man walking out the door with his bed is proof that Jesus has power, that you might know that I have power on earth to forgive sins. He is claiming divine prerogatives. He's claiming to be God. Only God can forgive sins, that you might know that I, the Son of Man, has power on earth to forgive sins. He then commanded the man to take his bed and to walk, and he proved his power to forgive sins. Son of Man will be used again in the second chapter. Verse 28, Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Chapter 831, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes. He would be killed and after three days he would rise again. Mark 838, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark 9, 9, and as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what they had seen till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. 9, 12, and he answered and told them, Elijah verily comes first and restores all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught? 9.31, for he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after that he is killed, he will rise the third day. Mark 10.33, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they'll deliver him to the Gentiles. 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
13.26 And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. 13.32 But of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. For the Son of Man, verse 34, is as a man taking a far journey, left his house, gave the authority to his servants, and every man his work, and commanded uh, the porter to watch. Uh, 1421, the Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good for that man if he had never been born. 1441, for he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on, now take your rest. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And finally in verse 62, And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So this messianic title is something that Jesus took for himself and used it over and over again that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Isn't that glorious? He has power on earth to forgive your sins, my sins. And thank God we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Now he went forth again by the seaside. Uh, the house was packed. He couldn't minister all the people, so he had to get out into the open spaces. And as he was going by the seaside, and all of the multitude were following him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of customs. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed Jesus. The village of Capernaum, or the city of Capernaum, was on the main route from Europe to Africa. The land of Israel is the land bridge between Europe and Africa, and all of the goods that passed from Europe to Africa had to pass through. Uh, the land of Israel. And uh, one of the first places that they came on this route from Damascus, the, the large place, was Capernaum. And thus, that is where they had the custom agents who would collect the import and export taxes for the goods that were passing through. And Matthew, or Levi, the son of Alphaeus, was one of the tax collectors collecting the custom taxes on the goods that came through. Most of the tax collectors uh, were noted crooks and hated. They would extort money from the people. As a general rule, they were given a certain quota that they were to turn over to the Roman government. Everything that they could get over the quota, they could keep. And thus there was a tremendous incentive 
to really gouge the people, but they had the power of the Roman government behind them. And thus they were extremely hated. Um, we pick up the word publican, that actually is the word uh, that means tax collector. And so uh, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, he was sitting there at his seat of customs. And Jesus said, follow me. And he arose and followed Jesus. Now, his commitment was probably even greater than that of Peter and Andrew, James, and John because they left their ships and followed Jesus, but they could always go back fishing again. Uh, James and John, their father Zebedee, owned the fishing vessels, perhaps even a fleet, had servants and so forth, and, and so they could always go back to the old life if following Jesus didn't work out. But with Matthew, he could never go back and get his job again. Once he left his job, I mean, that was complete. A, a complete shutting the door on the past and I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. There could be no turning back for Matthew. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meeting in his house, the first thing he did in following Jesus is going to bid farewell to the old buddies, the tax collectors. They had to sort of run around with each other because no one else wanted to associate with them. And so he threw a big party at his house, a big feast, where Jesus might be able to speak to his friends and they be captured by this man. So it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners classified together because <laughs> if you were a tax collector, you were a sinner. Uh, you remember when Zacchaeus uh, climbed the tree to see Jesus. He also was a tax collector, couldn't mix with the crowd, had to get up high away from the crowd in order to see Jesus. And Jesus came to the tree, told him to come down. He was going to come to his house and eat. And they found fault again with Jesus for going to the house of a tax collector, a publican. And Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, using the title again, Son of Man. And Zacchaeus said, Lord, if I have defrauded from any man, I'm going to return to him double and all. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. It, it was very common for the tax collectors to defraud. But the sign that there was true conversion was the repentance, the change, the restoration. And so there were publicans and sinners sitting together with Jesus and his disciples there were many, and they followed him. And here again, now we have them, these scribes and Pharisees, these religious leaders, critical. When they saw him eating with the publicans and sinners, they didn't say it to Jesus, but they said to his disciples, how is it 
that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners. Critical, finding fault. It, it's uh, in each one of these little stories that we read of Jesus here, how that they are looking for things to accuse him of. You see, to them, if you would even touch a sinner, his sin could be transferred on to you. And so when they would walk down the street, they would hold their robes tightly about them so that their robes could not swing and maybe touch a person who was sinful. They wanted no association, not even a touching. But here's Jesus eating, which is even in that culture more than just touching. It's becoming one with the person. And so their challenge of the disciples, why is Jesus eating with the publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, evidently they said it loud enough that he could hear them. He said unto them, they that are whole need not the physician, but they that are sick. Recognizing and admitting that he was in sick company, but he came to heal. In the previous chapter, we find Jesus touching the leprous man, something that no one would do. But he touched only to heal. He kept company only to save. They that are whole don't need the physician, those that are sick. And I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think that we would be shocked today, if Jesus were here today, at some of the places he would go and some of the people he would minister to. I wonder if maybe we wouldn't be, like the scribes and Pharisees, a little shocked and say, wait a minute, you know. Why is he going there? Only going to minister to seek and to save those that are lost. He's always interested in the person with the greatest need. Didn't come to call the righteous to change. I've called the sinners to change. And the disciples of John, we are told, and the Pharisees used to fast. Uh, evidently, this was one of those Days in the year in which there was a general fast among the people, and they did have days in which they observed fasting. And, and probably on one of these religious fast days, the disciples of Jesus weren't fasting. They were eating. And so the Pharisees, said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Now, the, they address the disciples concerning Jesus. Now they're addressing Jesus concerning the disciples. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. So while I'm here, Jesus said, I'm the bridegroom. There's, there's, it's rejoicing time. It's, it's the feasting time. Days will come. I'll be taken away. Those days they will fast. Fasting has been a part of religious experiences, not exclusively in the uh, Judeo-Christian, but in many different uh, religious uh, settings and backgrounds. Fasting is a part of religious observances. I feel that there is a value in fasting, a spiritual value that can be gained by fasting, but not just in a mechanical kind of a, well, I'm going to fast so I can be blessed. Or I'm going to fast until God, you know, d works. Uh, it, it, it's, that puts fasting in, 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 a, in a works kind of a thing, seeking to obligate God to do a, a work for you because you've been fasting. Uh, whatever God does for you, he does purely through grace. You do not and cannot deserve the work of God in your life. And if a person is fasting in order to receive some special blessing from God, he's got the wrong concept of fasting. I can remember reading of a minister who was going to fast until he heard from God. And he fasted for 43 days, and he heard from God. <laughs> he died. But to me, the whole concept of fasting and, and the value that I see is that there is, and we're aware of this conflict, this inner conflict between the flesh and the spirit. The Bible speaks about this warfare that is going on within us. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit lusting against the flesh. The two being contrary. And how that we often find ourselves doing things that we really don't want to do or didn't intend to do. Now, Recognizing the two natures, the fleshly and the spiritual, we are very careful to see that the fleshly nature or the fleshly man is fed three times a day on a regular basis. We don't want to miss a meal. We're very um, careful to see that we have our regular meals. But the spiritual man is often fasting because we are not feeding the spiritual man. We're not into the word on a regular basis. It's sort of hit and miss. 
If you would feed your spiritual man like you feed your physical man, or you would probably be extremely strong spiritually, but if you would feed the physical man like you feed the spiritual man, you'd probably be dead. Such irregular eating habits. So, in that, that is the general characteristic of making certain that we are fed physically, but so often neglecting the spiritual feeding. It is no wonder that in this battle, the spirit against the flesh, that we often find the flesh overcoming the spirit. So fasting is sort of a reversal of the normal process in that I am feeding the spiritual man, getting into the word of God and, and feeding my spirit while I am letting the fleshly man go without food for a while, let him get weak and weakened as a result of not eating. And, and th thus, as I am feeding on the things of the Spirit, I am built up spiritually, I become strong spiritually. And uh, that, to me, is the real value of fasting. Not fasting for things. Not fasting to obligate God to answer a certain request or whatever, but just desiring to build up the spiritual man and to become strong in the things of the spirit by heavy feeding on the word of God and, and waiting upon God, fellowshipping, praying, fast and prayer is usually associated and must be associated with real effective fasting. It's got to be fasting and prayer. So Jesus said the time will come when they will. While I'm here, they don't need to. I'm the bridegroom is with them. We're going to Celebrate, but the time will come when they will fast. And then Jesus sort of speaks out against these who are criticizing him. And he said, No man also sews a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that is filled in will take it away from the old, and the tear will be made worse. Now, in those days, they didn't have samphorized shrunk. And the first washing, there was always a great shrinking of the clothes. And thus, if you would take an old garment that had been washed over and over again, the shrinkage is all out of it. And you take, if you have a tear, you sew a new patch of new cloth in that old garment. The first time you wash it, the patch shrinks. And as it shrinks, it'll rip out the old garment. So you just don't sew new patches on old garments. Nor do you put new wine in the old leather wineskins. Now, you put them in fresh wineskins that are soft, uh, leather is soft and supple, but the leather, when it gets hard, if you put the new wine in, it'll, it'll crack, it'll split the hardened leather. So you put it into the soft, supple leather 
skins. What Jesus is saying is that this old religious system of which the scribes and the Pharisees were a part were not able to handle the new work that God was doing and wanting to do. And so God is going outside of the established religious system in order to do his new work because it would only, it would just break up, it would tear apart the old systems. And I have found that this is a general case through history. It's so easy for the wineskins to get old and hard and stiff and no longer pliable. And so when God is desiring to do a new work, he usually goes outside of the organized religious systems and begins a whole new work in, in that which is supple and soft and, and pliable. That's where I, basically I got my parable, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. And how important it is for us to remain flexible so that God can move as he desires to move. We not try to confine him to a particular pattern, to a particular way, as we so often do when we get to be old skins. When we get all organized and, uh, you know, we, we, it, the skins get tighter and stiffer and, and, and uh, more rigid all the time. And so the religious systems of man... God so often wants to work, but he goes outside of the established denominations and, and systems to begin a new work and a fresh work in the hearts and the lives. And, and I really do believe that Calvary Chapel is a fresh work, uh, that God created a new skin, and, and that he wanted to do a, a new work, and, and thus he created this new skin to pour his spirit upon, to touch lives. And God help us not to get rigid. God help us in the days to come if the Lord should tarry. And if he tarries very long, we will pass from the scene. But in years to come, I'll tell you if they say, well, now when Chuck was here, this is the way Chuck did it. I'll come back and haunt them. <laughs> we have to stay flexible. We have to stay open to be used by the Spirit of God. Uh, it, it's so important that we, that we not get rigidly set. That is why we have fought against establishing a denominational relationship with the other Calvary chapels. That's why none of them send us any reports. None of them send us any finances. They only borrow from us. <laughs> All of the boys come home to daddy, you know. But I don't want to see that kind of rigid controls established and set. I want to stay flexible. I want to stay open. And, and it's so important if we're going to see a continued move of God's Spirit. 
And that's what I desire, the continued move of God's Spirit. That we, that we remain supple, pliable. So Jesus is, is saying, you guys, you old wineskins, I mean, God's going outside of the religious system. He's not going to come through the priesthood and so forth. He's going outside because he has a new work of his spirit to do. Then it came to pass, and here's the last little story of chapter 2, in which they're going to again find fault with Jesus. came to pass that he went through the wheat fields or the grain fields. Now, uh, they really didn't have corn like uh, our corn here. This is... Uh, Corn is sort of an American thing, you know, with the American Indians. Uh, but uh, the, the, the corn is barley corn. You've heard of barley corn or wheat. It's, it's corn of wheat or corn of barley. And they were going through the fields and they were, uh, disciples were picking on the Sabbath day these little ends of the barley or the wheat. Now, in... Uh, Late May, early June, the spring wheat begins to turn brown, and you can actually pick the uh, ear of it or the uh, top of it, and you rub it in your hands. And as you rub it in your hands, you rub the husk off the chaff, and you can just get a good handful of wheat. And wheat is very edible. It's a softer grain. And uh, when it's uh, fresh like that, it's quite edible. And, of course, extremely nourishing. And it has a great flavor. I've, I've often taken the wheat and uh, rubbed it and eaten it. It actually turns into sort of a gum. We used to, when we were kids, uh, with the chicken food, pick out all the wheat and... Uh, then we would chew it until it turned into a gum, and uh, we would chew this wheat gum all day long. Uh, but it was healthy for us. Mom always let us do it because she knew wheat was healthy for us. Uh, but the disciples were on the Sabbath day picking this wheat, rubbing it in their hands, and, and eating the wheat. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful. You're not to do any work on the Sabbath day. And according to their interpretation of the law, that constitutes work, to pick that grain and rub it in your hands, real work, and eat it. And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had a need? And was hungry, he and those that were with him? How that he went to the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest. And he gave it also to those that were with him. Have you never read that? In other words, Jesus is saying that human need, human hunger and to take care of human need is even greater than the observance of the Sabbath day. And that David, because of the hunger and the need, 
did that which was, of course, not really lawful. Only the priests were to eat the showbread that was set out before the Lord. But because of the need, he did it. Because the need justifies the, the actual human need, justifies the action. So he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was God's gift to man. It is important for the body to have a day in which there is the recuperation, the change of pace, the rest. And God made it for man's benefit. He didn't make man for the Sabbath, but he made man for our Sabbath for man's benefit. And then Jesus said that which no doubt upset them greatly. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now the issue that seems to create the greatest antagonism against Jesus is his failure to observe the Sabbath day according to their traditions. Here we have now the Sabbath day, the challenging of Jesus because he allows the disciples to take and uh, eat the grain as they are going through the field to pick it and to eat it as they're going through the field because they're hungry. And Jesus is facing this issue. He said, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. It was made for man, for man's benefit and not to be a heavy yoke upon man as it had become under their uh, traditional interpretations of the law. So, the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, as we move into chapter 3, the next issue also took place on the Sabbath day, and it was the one that gelled their uh, animosity against Jesus and brought the determination that he is a menace and he has to be put to death. It's over the Sabbath day issue. Shall we turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, as we continue our study and our journey through the Word of God? As we get into the third chapter, we find the story of Jesus entering into the synagogue in Capernaum where there was a man there on the Sabbath day with a withered hand. Now, the Greek language would indicate that this was not a condition from birth, but his hand had become withered and probably as the result of a stroke. Whatever the cause, he was unable to use the hand. And they, that is the scribes, who were there in the synagogue not to worship, but to see that traditions were observed, that nothing was done out of order or out of tradition. The scribes were watching Jesus to see 
if he would violate their traditional observance of the Sabbath day and according to their traditions, not according to the law, but according to their interpretation, where the law said thou shalt not do any servile work on the Sabbath day, they had interpreted servile work, one of the works, as that of healing. And thus they had considered that healing someone on the Sabbath day was a violation of the law. Now, they did say that you could do whatever was necessary to save a person's life. You could take emergency means, such as tying a tourniquet on a person who's bleeding to death, but you could do nothing towards the healing process until the Sabbath day was over. That was strictly traditional, not in the law at all, but in their interpretation of the law. So they were watching Jesus to see if he would violate their interpretation of the law, would he heal on the Sabbath day? Now, in our last chapter, the last episode of chapter 2, we find that Jesus was going through the wheat fields with his disciples on the Sabbath day. They began to pick the wheat, rub it in their hands to knock the chaff off and to eat it, and they found fault. Why do your disciples do that which is not lawful? And Jesus declared that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and that he was Lord of the Sabbath. So this upset them. Now it's a Sabbath day in Capernaum. Uh, same issue, the interpretation of the Sabbath day, uh, according to their understanding and interpreting of the law. Will he heal on the Sabbath day? In order that they might accuse him, they're seeking to find fault with him. Anything for which they can make accusations against him. So Jesus turning to the scribes, those who were seeking to form charges against him, he asked them, is it lawful on Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? Now, to heal a man with a withered hand would be good. Not to heal the man with a withered hand, if you had the capacity to do so, would be evil. So is it lawful to do good or to do evil? Now, it's a very logical question, and he had them. There was nothing. They couldn't say, well, it's you know, not lawful to do good. They couldn't say that. So, so he had them, and, and they knew it. So they didn't answer him. He said, is it lawful to heal or to kill? To do good or evil? Heal or kill? And, and they really had no response for him. And then he said to the man with the withered hand, stretch forth your hand. Now, in commanding him to stretch forth his hand, he is commanding the man to do something which is totally impossible for him to do. It's an impossible command. And at this point, the man has a choice. One, 
to argue with the command of Jesus and to tell Jesus all of the reasons why he could not stretch forth his hand. He could tell him all about the stroke or whatever it was that created the blight. And he could give him all the reasons why that was an impossibility. I just can't do it. I've tried to do it many times. It just doesn't work. It, I have no control. And he could have told Jesus all about his own personal weaknesses. Or he could will to obey the command of Jesus. And he could allow his brain to give a message once more to that hand, move. He chose the second. He willed to obey the command of Jesus. And he discovered the moment he willed to obey the command of Jesus, though it was an impossible command, everything that was necessary to obey was given to him by the Spirit. Now, there's important lessons for us here. Because Jesus gives us commands concerning the blight or the weakness in our lives, that withered area of your life. And, and Jesus addresses those withered areas. Maybe it's a weakness, a penchant towards a particular sin. And the Lord says to you, now, be victorious in that area of your life. And unfortunately, so many times, we choose to tell the Lord why we can't. How many times we've tried and how weak we are. And, and we're, we're prone to just give him all the excuses why we can't do it. Whereas if we would will to obey, we would discover that immediately all that was necessary to obey would be given to us. Now, I do note that the enemies of Jesus seem to have a keener insight concerning him than even his disciples and many of us today. For when Jesus entered the synagogue on that Sabbath day, knowing that this man was sitting there with a withered hand, as Jesus entered the door of the synagogue, they immediately associated Jesus with the man with the withered hand. They knew that Jesus would be interested in him and interested in helping him. So they watched to see if he would heal him. They, they realized that Jesus would be concerned and wanting to help that man. They associated Jesus in their minds with the man with the greatest need. As Jesus had said earlier, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. They that are whole need not the physician, but they that are sick. And Jesus came to minister to those people who have the greatest needs. And they knew that. And they instinctively realized that Jesus would be interested in that man. Now, we so often feel that the Lord is not interested in us because of our great need, because of that blighted area in our life, because of that weakness that we have. We feel, well, the Lord is just tired of me. He's tired of trying to help. He's not interested in me. 
Somehow we look around and we see all the righteous people and all of the wonderful people, and we think, well, the Lord's interested in them. I can understand that. But, um, you know, he's really not interested in me because I have failed and I have this weakness and I have this blighted area in my life. But you are the one that he is most attracted to because he came to seek and to save those who are lost, to help those that are weak, to heal. So we are told that he looked upon them with anger. Now, this is an emotion that we rarely associate with Jesus, anger. He was one of the coolest. I mean, nothing seemed to disturb him except religious blindness. This is the thing that, remember the other time uh, where we saw Jesus angry? When he came into the temple and found that they had made merchandise out of the temple, they were using it for their own personal profits in selling the doves and the certified animals for sacrifice. And he made the scourge and, and began to drive them out angry. Here again, his anger was stirred by the religious people who, because of their narrow religious traditions, would keep a man from experiencing the touch of God and the help of God in his life. That angered Jesus, and I believe rightfully so. Narrow religious traditions that keep men from experiencing the touch of God, that God desires to bless them, but the religious traditions would keep them from that. It angered Jesus then. I believe it angers Jesus today. Now, when the man was healed, they immediately took counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians were friends of Rome. Now, the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, they would never think of eating with a Gentile, of even having any kind of commerce with a Gentile. Touching a Gentile, they wouldn't do that. But the Herodians were those Jews who were a part of Herod's court and had become friends of Rome. And they were courting the favor of Rome. So the Herodians and the scribes and Pharisees were opposed to each other but they were united in their common desire to destroy Jesus. And as we pointed out this morning, it seems incomprehensible that men would want to destroy Jesus. And why? Because he healed a man with a withered hand, contrary to their religious convictions because it was the Sabbath day. So they, they want to kill him. Now their law says thou shalt not kill. That doesn't seem to bother them.
We'll continue with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast, as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the anger of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 2 through 3 when visiting thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you that our Lord... Jesus Christ is Lord over all and Lord of the Sabbath. Lord, we thank you that you are our rest. And we have entered into that glorious Sabbath in Jesus where we have ceased from our own labors. And Lord, we trust in your righteousness imputed to us through faith that which we could not do or attain or achieve for ourselves and of ourselves, you have done for us. And Lord, we're so grateful that you were made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God through you. We thank you, Lord, that you are our great high priest, touched by the feelings of our infirmities because you were in all points tempted like we are. And you know what it is, Lord, to go through temptation. And thus we thank you for your understanding and your help as we, Lord, face temptations. Lord, what a joy it is to learn more and more about you, about your nature, your character, your actions. Help us, Lord, that we might emulate you. Be like you, Lord, in word, in deed. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The 1960s became one of the most colorful periods in American history. The counterculture was dropping out and turning on. The Summer of Love was the stage for many dramas of change, and the most popular musical group in the world was singing All You Need Is Love. But one man in Southern California was reaching out with the answer, and the truth began to set people free. Author and pastor Chuck Smith began to share the love of Jesus Christ with a generation that was looking for love in all the wrong places. Now some 40 years later, the gospel of love 
is still changing lives. In his book simply titled, Love, The More Excellent Way, Pastor Chuck Smith expounds upon the love that can change your life, now and forever. For more information on how to obtain your copy, visit a bookstore nearest you or call 1-800-272-WORD or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org. That's thewordfortoday.org.